You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. In my book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, I told the story of how I met my first Muslim friend when I was a newlywed at 23 years old. His name was Atif, and he was my eight-year-old Iranian neighbor in the apartment upstairs. Through Atif, I met his mother and her friends, and for the first time in my life, I was immersed in a social network in which I, as a Christian, was a minority. It was a powerful and life-changing experience. And ever since, I felt sorry for my fellow Christian friends who have never had the experience of being a religious minority and who have never had close Muslim friends so that they have a reality by which to judge the anti-Muslim prejudices so often picked up in Christian radio, Christian books, social media, and mass media. I was 23 when I met my first Muslim friend, but it wasn't until I was 59 years old that I met my first Sikh friend. Her name is Valerie Kaur. Many people pronounce the name of her religion as Sikhism, but Valerie taught me that its proper pronunciation is Sikh, Sikhism. In our last episode, I introduced you to a mutual friend of Valerie's and mine, Rabbi Jill Jacobs. I wanted Christians to understand how Jews have experienced Christians through much of our history. And Rabbi Jill, helped us see our religion from the outside, so to speak, to see ourselves as our Jewish neighbors see us. In this episode, Valerie will help us in a similar way. She has some amazing stories to tell. And her book, See No Stranger, is literally one of the best books I've read in my whole adult life. It is quite simply a guidebook to help people learn to love their neighbors as themselves. After Valerie and I had become friends, we discovered that our stories had been intertwined through Valerie's best friend as a child. I hope you'll come to appreciate Valerie as much as I do. And I hope our conversation will help you see her faith and your own faith in a new way. Well, everyone, I'm so happy that my dear friend Valerie Kaur can be here with us. And Valerie, you're in California as we speak, yes? I am, yes. And I wonder if you could just tell everybody a little bit about your story and uh, and maybe even start with when your family first settled here in the United States before many of our families. Oh, Brian, let me just say, I'm just so delighted to be here with you in this moment, just to be uh, in conversation with you. Every time we're together, I feel like my heart just expands. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> well, I feel the same way, dear friend. I feel the same way. My grandfather sailed by steamship from India to California in 1913. When he arrived, the immigration officials at Angel Island took one look at his beard and turban and put him behind bars. So Ellis Island on the East Coast was a beacon of welcome for European immigrants. 
But Angel Island on the West Coast was designed to detain, incarcerate, deport as many Asian immigrants as possible. And I just think how few people have ever even heard of Angel Island. You know, my family, I didn't even realize I could go there. It's a small island just off of the port of San Francisco. A few weeks ago, my family went there for the first time, and we went to the barracks where my grandfather was detained for three months, saw the view out the window, imagined him. And Brian, I just had this image of like imagining a a time portal just ripping open and him glancing at my brother and me and my children. Maybe, maybe getting a glimpse of, you know, the future that was possible if he just kept on. So it was, it was profound to think about how much our ancestors had endured and how the only reason they endured is that they didn't do it alone. It was through deep and profound, dangerous acts of solidarity. You know, my grandfather would have been deported if it weren't for the intervention of a, of a white man, of a white Christian lawyer named Henry Marshall, who filed a writ of habeas corpus and helped free him on Christmas Eve of 1913. So my grandfather was a farm laborer. He made his way down California. He settled in Clovis and small farming town outside of Fresno at that time. And Fast forward, and when it was his Japanese-American neighbors who were rounded up and taken to their own incarceration camps during World War II, my grandfather, you know, maybe he remembered mm-hmm. what it meant to see them not as strangers, but as sisters, brothers, as kin. And he looked after their farm so they would have a, a life to return to. He went to visit them in the camps when it was dangerous to. And he brought back one of those visits from Post in Arizona, a piece of petrified wood that we still keep on our family's fireplace as a, you know, as a this physical, heavy <laughs> reminder of, of the, the magnitude, of the immensity of acting in solidarity. So I grew up on the farmland that my grandfather farmed in Clovis. My father was born on that land. I was born on that land. And growing up, there was just no, you know, distinction for me this, there was no tension between being a sick and listening to the stories of my grandparents, stories of, you know, saints and prophets and warriors and poets and being an American, <laughs> taking yes. those the, that deep heritage and using it to find relationship with the land and with one another. And it wasn't until I started going to public school that I realized that others didn't see me the same way. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Valerie, I'm going to guess that a, a lot of folks who are listening to this podcast really know very, very little about the Sikh faith. First, a lot of them have only ever heard to it as heard it referred to as the Sikh faith, but uh, a lot of people don't know it's the world's, I believe, fifth largest religion, 30 million some followers around the world. I wonder how would you explain it to uh, your own upbringing and what it felt like to grow up? Uh, obviously, it felt natural. It's the way life is uh, for you growing up. But yeah, what, w- how would you introduce it to people who aren't familiar? Oh, I would introduce it to you the way it was introduced to me through story, story and song. My, my favorite story was always the origin story of our faith. And that is the story of Guru Nanak. So 550 years ago, in what is now India and Pakistan, in Punjab, there lived a man named Nanak who was born into a Hindu family. 
but looked around him at the deep religious tensions between Muslims and Hindus, the practice of patriarchy and caste and empty ritual. He saw so much violence, so much cruelty that one day he disappeared by the bank of a river and he sat in contemplation as if looking for the answer. And the way my my grandfather would tell me, the sun rose and the sun fell, the sun rose and the sun fell, and still Nanak sat in perfect contemplation until the third day, the sun rose, and then it happens. He is uplifted into this ecstatic revelation. He tastes the truth sweet as nectar, and the words that tumble from his lips are, Ik on God, Ik on God. There is only one, oneness, the oneness of humanity, the oneness of the world. And the way I understood it was that you could look upon the face of anyone or anything and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. That oneness, that recognition of our interdependence, our interconnectedness, it it struck Nanak into a state of wonder, vismad, and he began to sing singing songs of love that are known as shabads or poetry and set to music. It's called girtin. It's singing songs in praise of the divine around us and between us and within us. And those who began to follow Nanak were called Sikhs. And Sikh simply means seeker of truth <laughs> or learner of truth or forever disciple. To, to Sikh um, is, is simply to learn. And so those who followed Nanak as Sikhs were soon known as um, as warriors. Because if I see you as a part of me, if I see you as sister, brother, sibling, then I must be willing to fight for you when you are in harm's way. And so six, to connect with the divine, it meant to serve, and it meant to fight against injustice whenever it appeared. So it was a very rare occurrence in the history of the world to have a mystical mystical community become a, a, a warrior people. The Cathars, the Sufis, the Gnostics, all throughout history, you have examples of mystical communities that were crushed by the, the hierarchies of the time, the, the, those who ruled by hierarchy to maintain power. And, and Sikhs were, were distinct in that their religiosity, their spirituality called them not to sit on the mountaintop or become ascetics, but to be in the world and of the world and fight for the love, <laughs> through love, um, that, that binds us. And so six became known as Sant Sapahi, sage warriors or warrior sages. The warrior fights, the sage loves. It became a path of revolutionary love. Mm-hmm. Well, it strikes me how I'm thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh and the idea of engaged Buddhism or in the Christian faith, you know, uh, this podcast is part of the Center for Action and Contemplation. And here, right at this beginning, was contemplation and action. If we're connected, then you must be protected. I must be protected by one another. And so it, it's this engaged mysticism, not uh, a um, escapist mysticism. That's right. And even our Gurdwaras, if you go in almost every city, every town in the country has a Sikh Gurdwara that you can go to. And when you walk in, the Gurdwara is organized into two main rooms, the Divan Hall, the prayer hall, where you sing the songs of Nanak and the other saints and gurus, listen to the songs, listen to the music. And then the Langar Hall, where you practice serving and sharing a communal meal. 
So you could go to any Gurdwara. You're welcome. You're welcome to sit and listen and feel that transcendent uplift that Nanak did. And then in the Lunger Hall, you it's like you're practicing, you're realizing the oneness that you tasted. So the Divan Hall, you you realize you remember God, but the Lunger Hall is where you realize God. It's through serving, through acting, through connecting in relationship that we activate the divine inside of us. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, so beautiful. So beautiful. Valerie, a lot of people, when they think about the Sikh faith, they think about articles of clothing and style of hair and other outward symbols. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So to be a Sikh is to commit yourself to a life of love and service. And our gurus taught us never to hide from the call to serve or the call to fight for justice. And so in doing so, the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh Ji, gave us five articles of faith. And the most visible of those articles is long, uncut hair called gish. And that gish, that long hair, is often wrapped in a turban if you are a man, um, mostly worn down if you're a woman, but some women wrap their, their heads in turbans as well. So if you see someone with a turban here in the United States, the chances are they are a Sikh. Um, and the idea is that if you need help, if you need clothing, if you need shelter, if you need food, you can spot us in a crowd and we will be there to help you. <laughs> mm, isn't that beautiful? So it's what a beautiful I- image. It's almost like a red cross or a red crescent. It's like a sign. I'm letting <laughs> you know I'm available here as an agent of love and service. That's right. And it's like, we got to throw out the idea of of being colorblind <laughs> or seeing everyone the same. It's like, we actually want you to see us. It's almost an, an evolution of the golden rule, you know, to love others as you would like to be loved. The evolution of that is, is to love others as they wish to be loved, as they wish mm. to be seen. And for six, to love us is to know us, is to see us, like see our brown skin, see our karas, our, our bracelets, see our long hair, see our turbans. And in seeing us, you know that you can call upon us in your time of need. So it's it's been a painful and ironic thing that these very symbols that are meant to, to show our commitment to love and serve has marked us as subjects of violence here in this country since September 11th and long before. So to see more and more people, especially Christians, in the wake of hate crimes show up with their Sikh community members at the vigils, at the gurdwaras, at the marches to say, we see you, <laughs> we stand with you, we love you, that that is the only way forward. You know, in this season of learning how to see, we're trying to help Christians to, in a sense, be able to stand outside their faith and look at it from the outside, not just from the inside. And and this is one of the reasons I hope you could help us. Um, and uh, we, we've shared through the years many stories of the in- interaction of, of your intersection of your life with Christians. Some of those interactions were very painful. And you are a very gentle human being, and you would never, I know, want to bring up anything to shame anyone. But I think it would be good for folks to hear uh, some of those painful stories. What it was like to be a, a, a brown, sick girl growing up in California, surrounded by mostly white Christian, either Catholic or Protestants, who um, saw you as the other. They, uh, and, and their own zeal and religious identity gave them a feeling of, well, even 
difference, distance, maybe even hostility sometimes. I, I wonder if you could share about that a little bit. I was in eighth grade sitting in the library with my very best friend in the whole world. Her name was Lisa. And we were working on our history day projects together, but we were really giggling and passing notes to each other and messing around. When Lisa gets really quiet for a moment and she has this faraway look in her eyes and she says, Valerie, I just can't wait until judgment day. <laughs> I don't think I ever heard an eighth grader say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, this is, this is a public high school where the morning started with prayer circles around the American flag, where after school and weekend activities were all about Christians coming together in community. And so it was such, it was such in the air, but it was never something that we ever talked about until that moment. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, I, I, then it'll just be us. It'll just be us. I can't wait until it's just us who, who are left. And I said, well, where will everyone else go? <laughs> and then she looked at me very uncomfortable. She said, well, you know, you know, down there. And it was that moment that I had to break to my very best friend the fact that I was not Christian. And the moment that I did that, Lisa, you, you know, I'm not Christian. I could see the blood drained from her face, but I thought Sikhism was a sect of Christianity, <laughs> she said, because of course, how could her very best friend not be saved, not be good, not be Christian? And what followed from that, Brian, oh, there were months and months of these long letters that we wrote back and forth to each other, hid in our backpacks, passed to each other in class, went home, read. And in each letter, Lisa was just trying so hard to get me to say the words, just say the words, accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and everything will be fine. Everything will be solved. But I was a problem that I could not solve, that she could not solve. Because even if I said those words, I thought, what about my grandfather, who I know is good and beautiful and beloved, and who would not say these words? And so if not for me, then for him, I had to defend my family, defend myself, and honestly, Brian, I had never met a Christian who was any other way. And so it was as if I was trying to find a way to make my family exist in a world that saw us as condemned, as unsaved. And my nights were, you know, the dreams I had at nights were just of hellfire and that judgment day had come. And then I was searching for my family, but it was too late. I mean, over and over again. And I, not all this time, I'm I'm losing my my best friend, because I couldn't say the words. Only looking back now, did do I see just, you know, I was in a lot of pain, but Ryan, I think she was in more pain because she, she had inherited a theology that divided the world into good and bad, right and wrong, saved and unsaved. And her, her theology severed her from her own deep knowing that her best friend was good and beloved. Like, it's like her theology stole me from her. <laughs> and, and she was trying to make it all make sense, you know, try to hold both, but she couldn't hold both. And so she had to let me go. It was many, many, many years later that I got a Facebook notification, maybe, maybe 15 years later, maybe 20 years later, <laughs> I got a Facebook notification from Lisa telling me that she needed to reach out with an apology, that she had gone on her own journey and that she had found you, Brian, that she listened to all of your books on audio tape during her travels 
and that showed her a way for her to be Christian and still hold me as her beloved friend. And she was coming back to me to ask for forgiveness and also to say, to show really that in the end, love is the way, the truth, and the light. And so, Brian, she, um, she and I <laughs> are now good friends. <laughs> and she even became one of my research fellows for the Revolutionary Love Project. And after we had recently met, I, I really owe you and your work and your, the way that you opened for her. You brought us back together again. Mm, well, I feel I'm the greatest beneficiary just to hear that story. That's just amazing. That's just amazing. To think about the pain. Her, She had a connection to you. She loved you. And she felt oneness with you, even to say that after death, I feel we'll be together. But her, her religion got in the way of that. And to be loyal to her religion, she either had to make you sign up on her side of her religion, or she had to let distance come between you because it would betray her religion to be, to feel one with you without separation. Oh my goodness. And it comes right back to that pain that uh, Guru Nanak felt when he saw his Hindu and Muslim neighbors feeling division and to his mystical insight that there is only one that we're all really connected. It just comes around and around, doesn't it? To these same struggles and truths. It does. And it reminds me, I didn't have a way of reconciling the pain inside of me until I had an encounter at the end of, at the end of high school. Cause Lisa was the first, I lost my best friend. And, but then I had teachers who sat down and told me that the only way to save my family was to say the words. And I had, I had a neighbor come over and perform an exorcism on me, rocking me back and forth, saying that every time I was confused, it was the devil speaking to me. And I was, it was so relentless. It was like, it wasn't just Lisa. It was like, you know, it was the theology that hovered like the breath (laughs) over the land. And it was just, I couldn't um, make myself make sense inside of it. And so there was a Sunday morning where my grandfather took me to the Gurdwara, and we were sitting in the Divan Hall, listening to the Kirtan, listening to the music. And my grandfather has his eyes closed, and he is just experiencing that transcendence, that Guru Nanak experience on the riverbank, and he's one with it all. And I am just thinking about Lisa, and thinking about my teacher, and thinking about the neighbor, and my heart is beating fast. And I think, like, why? Why is, is the collared priest on the corner of this street on a Sunday morning opening his mouth to condemn me, to condemn my family, to condemn my grandfather? Aren't we warriors? Why are we just sitting here in our good waters? Why are we confronting them? So I don't know. I think I was just sleep deprived. But I, I, while everyone's eyes were closed, I just, I got up in the middle of that service. I marched out of the Gurdwara. I went down into the street, marched down the streets of downtown Fresno. I'm a woman and young woman in a long silver camise. My fists are clenched. <laughs> I'm walking almost like in a dream. And I, I approach the first church. And I bang on the doors. No one answers. So I go a few more blocks to the next church. I don't know what I was thinking, that I would confront the priest in front of the congregation. I had taken a few classes on philosophy at that point, so I thought I surely can beat anyone in an argument over the idea of pluralism versus exclusivism. So here I am, just all just wound up. I'm beating my my hand against the door, and the door opens, and it's this slight woman in this flowery dress and white hair, 
And she looks at me very confused. May I help you? <laughs> and I look into the church and I realize that the church is empty, that, you know, Christians pray earlier than six. We just take a long time. And so, so I say, I realize that she's the church organist and that the music that I heard from the church was hers. And I said, well, can I just, can I sit and listen to you practice? She said, well, yes, yes, dear, come in. So she, I sit in the pews and she, you know, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> Looking for the exit. And she places her fingers on the keys. And in that moment, it was like a thousand birds like erupting from a tree. It was music that made my heart open and swell and going up into the stars and back into time. And I, I looked up, you know, at the stained glass windows and the woodwork, and I could imagine the ikkum god of my faith. And then I saw Jesus with his arms stretched out open and his smile was wide and sad like the sea until he was embracing me and I was nothing and he was nothing and we were everything and I am just sobbing mm, 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 mm. I'm just sobbing and the music stops and I realize like Brian in all this time and all my wrestling as a kid trying to make sense I had never really tasted transcendence like that in all my time in the Gurdwara, listening to the music, I just was so in my head. But in that moment, I found, I tasted ik on God. I tasted the truth. And it was in a Christian church. And instead, I found my, my sanctuary. And so I'm bewildered. And the organist turns and looks at me and says, are you all right, my dear? And I collect myself. I remember that I was here to fight. And I said, well, I just can't believe that there could be such a thing as a God who would send me to hell. And she says, she kind of shrugs and says, well, I don't think so either. She says, well, some people, of course, don't agree. And she, she gives a little laugh. At this point, I think I'm collapsing into her shoulder. I'm <laughs> crying into her. She's, just, she's holding me. I'm crying and laughing. And it was... Brian, she was the first Christian I had met in my whole life who believed that I was good and beloved. Mm, 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 mm. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event. Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. And so here is this reality that I think we have to try to help more people see that 
when they're just trying to be good Christians and be loyal to what they're taught, uh, if they've been taught to see the world as us versus them or insiders and outsiders with those sort of dualistic uh, categories to thrust everyone in, um, they have no idea how much pain they're causing a eighth grader or 12th grader. Uh, and they, they have no idea how it feels to be on the outside of that. It goes so deep, Brian. It goes so deep. It goes like before conscious thought. You know, like I think because of that, that organist in that church, I went on to college to study religion. I went on to divinity school at Harvard to study religion. I mean, my whole life, my whole work right now around revolutionary love is just trying to recover the heart of all of our wisdom traditions to embody what I experienced in that church that Sunday morning. And still, for years and years, every time I saw a cross, I could feel my skin crawl. You know, it was like a sign of my own judgment. I couldn't see the symbol for what it was. I could only see it as something that was meant to torment me. And Brian, I'm ashamed to say this, but about seven years ago when we first met, Auburn Seminary brought us together as a cohort of faith leaders for a retreat in the desert. And I've never, ever, ever told you this. <laughs> but I think you were introduced as one of the greatest evangelical thinkers in the country. And when I heard that word, I was frightened of you. I didn't know how you saw me. Yeah. And I think even like the first day, maybe I didn't sit next to you at lunch or I found my place a little farther away. I didn't until I think there were a few things that you said that made you almost, it was like leaving me crumbs <laughs> to understand, oh no, Brian doesn't hate you. Hmm. Brian doesn't hmm. think that you're, that you're going to hell. Brian, Brian sees you. And that, those crumbs that you left me were like the ones that I follow to finally sit next to you and, and be in relationship with you. And then of course, you know, <laughs> seven years later, you are, one of my most beloved elders, mentors in my life. I can't imagine doing my work on, in this world without you. And that could have all been for naught if we hadn't had the courage to meet. Yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? That, of course, there are so many evangelicals who would be more angry at me than they would at you. <laughs> But you know that you know why that is because one of the ways that people in an in-group show their loyalty to the in-group is by maintaining their supremacy against the out-group, or by maintaining the the wall that separates them from the outside. And when anyone on the inside dares to reach out to befriend and love someone on the outside, it's seen as a betrayal of the boundaries of the group. And of course, we see it in politics with certain people obsessed with building walls and all the rest. It's There's a whole social psychology to that that we both have thought about a lot. But uh, there's a couple of sentences that I wrote in an earlier book and then uh, referred back to in my newest book, Do I Stay Christian? Um, where I talk about how all of the doubts and struggles I've been through uh, I realized what they were all really focused on was exactly what you experienced growing up. It was this Christian supremacy 
that had been baked into me. I didn't think it up. It was given to me and it's given to many, many, many Christians, still the majority, I think. And many people think the only way that they can get rid of the supremacy is to get rid of the religion. And I'm super, super sympathetic. Like, I think if you have a choice between being a Christian supremacist and just getting rid of Christianity, there's a good chance you'll become a better human <laughs> if you if you just leave. But um, when I realized that the supremacy was this idea that we have to create an us that's better than a them, it circles me back both to the kind of origin story of Sikhism and really of the story of Jesus. Because if Guru Nanak is seeing this division between Hindus who see themselves as insiders and Muslims as outsiders and, and vice versa. And then you think Jesus is growing up when he realizes that his world is divided between the clean and the unclean and that the people who are considered unclean, the, you know, the sex workers and the lepers and the, and people looked at people who we would consider as having disabilities and they were considered as being cursed by God in some way for maybe their parents' sin or something. And so, so much of his story is bridging those gaps, you know? And I just think this is, this is what's been there at the heart of our traditions, but it gets, it gets lost, doesn't it? Yes. It, you know, I, I grew up hearing the song of love as it came down to me from Nanak. But as I grew older and began to listen more widely, I began to hear that song of love coming down to us on the lips of so many spiritual teachers, social reformers, indigenous healers. I mean, Jesus, talk about a mystic, opening our hearts to love thy neighbor. You know, even Abraham, to, to open your tent to all, or Mohammed, to take in the orphan, or Buddha, unending compassion, or Mirabai, to love without limit, Guru Nanak, to see no stranger. I mean, the heart of all of the great wisdom traditions in the world is this mystical recognition that you are a part of me I do not yet know, <laughs> and that we forget that we are primed to divide the world into us versus them. And all of the isms that flow from that create the hierarchies of human value that keep us locked in cruelty, in oppression, in injustice, in conquest. And so what would it mean now for us to imagine that this time that we live in is perhaps our second great awakening? If those early prophets awakened us from an understanding of just other human beings in our tribe as human to a shared humanity, then what if this era is, is when we get to put that into practice <laughs> in a way that we never have before? What if we could structure our societies on the love ethic? What would that look like? What would it mean? And might that be the way that we steer humanity into the new way of being that is essential if we are to last, if we are to survive? Well, listen, and this is where I'm, I'm thinking of your 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 being at the uh, the island where your grandfather had been held uh, in detention, and him sort of peering through time. And I'm sort of imagining Jesus and Guru Nanak seeing us become friends and cheering and saying, "Oh, finally, finally!" You know, and you can think of uh, like, yeah, this is what's what is waiting to happen. I want to tell you something. I just said to someone the other day. I was talking about you to someone, uh, a Christian, 
And I said, you know, we Christians talk all the time about how Jesus' greatest commandment is to love, to love your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor even includes the outsider, the outcast, the enemy, and so on. And um, I said, the best book I've ever read that actually helps people figure out how to do that is by uh, my friend who is of the Sikh faith, and it's this beautiful book, See No Stranger. And... um, I have to say, I, I mean, really, it's one of the best books I've ever read. First, just your story is compelling. And I, you know, learned things that you have survived and uh, and and experienced that I, I had never known. And it's so beautifully told. But also your wisdom in saying, if this love really is what matters, we have to figure out how to operationalize this. We have to learn how to help more. Like we're getting pretty good at teaching people geometry and algebra and English grammar. And, but we got to get good at teaching people revolutionary love. And so I, I always, everyone I can, I encourage them to, to read this powerful book, but um, I wonder if it would be okay just to take a minute and tell people kind of the big picture, which really is captured in this beautiful compass image where you, in a sense, start at the heart and the heart flows out into three kinds of love. Could you just uh, maybe describe that for everybody? Yeah. Well, it it begins with reclaiming the meaning of love. (laughs) You know, in our culture today, we, we mistake love as this rush of emotion, as a rush to civility or forgiveness. And of course, that kind of love, as Dr. King said, was too sentimental and anemic to be any kind of force, powerful force in the world. So I redefine love as a form of sweet labor, Mm. fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice we make again and again. And we know that kind of love. When you think of your children and grandchildren, when I think of my babies, you know, that, that kind of practical care day in and day out, that harnesses all of our emotions. Joy is the, is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger is what we harness to protect that which we love. So we use all of our emotions when we love well. And when we choose to love beyond what evolution requires, or perhaps now evolution requires it. Yes, yes. (laughs) When we choose to love beyond our inner circle, that's when I say love becomes revolutionary. So revolutionary love is the choice to enter into labor for others even for our opponents and for ourselves. And I see three broad practices and how we can operationalize that kind of love. When we orient to others, that practice is called see no stranger. To wonder about others, to say you are a part of me I do not yet know, is to open ourselves to their story, to their grief, Not to fix the grief, but to sit with the grief, to bear the grief, and to be changed by that grief is then to gain information for how to fight for them when they are in harm's way. So wondering about others, grieving with them, fighting for them is how we practice seeing no stranger. And it's what builds that deep solidarity, you know, between the white lawyer and my grandfather, my grandfather and the Japanese Americans. It's like that ancestral solidarity. What if we could, you know, amplify that, (laughs) multiply that as just a way of being as an American, as a Christian, as a Sikh. Then we turn the compass to our opponent. And here, you notice I don't use the word enemy. Yes. Enemy is a a fixed and permanent identity. 
I use the word opponent because it's fluid. It's a category you could be in and out of. And so some may feel quite permanent, but when we open the possibility that they are our opponent, then an opponent is anyone whose ideas or actions or beliefs oppose ours. And that practice is called tend the wound. Tend the wound. Because Brian, what I've learned, and I've told these stories in my book, is that every time I've sat down with people I want to hate, from white supremacists to my own former abusers, whenever I sit with them and I want to hate them, I realize that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who act out of their insecurity or fear or blindness or greed. That doesn't make them any less dangerous, but when we see their humanity, they lose their power over us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we see their wound and we become not just, it's not just a moral act to, to love one's opponent, but it's a strategic act because I can ask myself, what are the cultural forces? What are the institutions? What made them behave that way? What makes them say that? What stories are so seductive that they cling to them? And that makes me smarter as an activist, as an advocate. But tending the wound begins with our own wound. So harnessing our anger, sitting with our rage is part of the practice of love. So our rage, our righteous rage carries information about what's important to us. And we can decide when we release that rage into safe containers, like the wailing, like our ancestors did, the wailing and the singing and the screaming and the dancing. Then when we move that energy, we can ask ourselves, what information does this rage carry? And how do I want to harness that energy for what I do in the world? And I call that harnessed energy, divine rage. The aim of divine rage is not vengeance. It is to reorder the world. And this is the fury in Jesus's eyes when he overturns the tables of the money changers in the temple, right? (laughs) That's right, exactly. (laughs) We have instances of this divine rage. So honoring our rage, and then if it's safe for us to listen to our opponents, to listen for the wound, and then to reimagine, to reimagine cultures, contexts, institutions in such a way that would free all of us, our opponents too. So I want to say one more thing before I move on is that Parker Palmer, this great elder and mutual friend, he calls revolutionary love the new nonviolence because it makes room for our grief. It makes room for our rage. And it makes room for the idea that everyone has a different role at any given time. So if you are someone who has a knee on your neck, it is not your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them. Your role is to stay alive. That's your revolutionary act. But if you are someone who is safe enough or brave enough to sit with those kinds of opponents, your neighbors, your congregants, your relatives, your nieces and nephews, your uncles and aunts, then we need you now in that. I need you in that labor. I can't do that labor. Only you can do that labor. And in relationship, in sustained relationship, only then we gain the possibility of transformation, reconciliation. So love for others is see no stranger. Love for our opponents is to tend the wound. And then we turn that compass to ourselves. How do we love ourselves? <laughs> Social reformers from Gandhi to King to Mandela, they taught us a lot about how to love others and opponents, but not at length about how to love ourselves. So this is the, the feminist intervention. Um, these are Black women leaders I've, I've sat at the feet of and learned from, from Audre Lorde to Bell Hooks. And they teach us that loving ourselves is not just a sign of self-indulgence, but a sign of political warfare. And this practice I called breathe and push. Breathe and push for the midwife has wisdom for all of us, no matter what body we are in, for how to sustain (laughs) ourselves in any long labor, 
right? The labor of building a community, of raising a family, of rebirthing a nation. She doesn't say breathe and push, my love, just keep pushing. No, she says, breathe, my love, then push and breathe again. There's a cadence, there's a rhythm and breathing and pushing. And Brian, my whole life, I just pushed and pushed and pushed <laughs> until I broke down, you know? And I, I had to learn the hard way that I would not find longevity unless I was weaving breath into my days, which was really just returning me to Guru Nanak's practice. When he gave us music and song and poetry, he was just weaving daily channels for transcendence into our labors. So how are you breathing? You know, are you breathing through, through poetry, through music, through meditation? And then when you are ready, how, how do you push yourself? You know, are you pushing to, to reconcile with your, with your white privilege, your Christian privilege? Do you push in the work of apology or the work of forgiveness or reconciliation? Pushing is uncomfortable. It hurts. <laughs> but it's exactly what is required as we are rebirthing ourselves and and then the final practice is to transition, to transition ourselves as we're transitioning the world. And when we orient to our labors this way, when we are seeing no stranger, tending the wound, breathing and pushing, then our labors become joyful. And that's the 10th practice of revolutionary love is to let joy in every day. And Brian, what I finally learned is that the labor of birthing a new nation, a new world, is not just a means to an end. But when we let joy in, when we lead it with love, then it can be an end in itself. It could be the most meaningful way to be alive. That is the revolutionary love compass. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, folks are will pick up this book. And it's the kind of book that really, well, and you're developing curriculum for it. And you're developing all kinds of ways to help people put this into practice. Because you and I both feel that this isn't just a matter of personal development, self-improvement, although I guess it's that, but we really believe that this is a existential, this is a matter of survival as we move forward. I've spent the last 20 years of my life organizing around hate. And I have made a promise to spend the next 20 years of my life organizing around love and so if folks go to seenostranger.com, then you'll see this entire learning hub we have built with meditations and guided inquiries and curricula. All of it is for free. And Brian, I was sharing with you one of the most surprising things I've seen is like, you know, schools have taken it up, organizations have taken it up and put it into practice. But I've seen so many churches say, it says love thy neighbor in our scripture, but how do we operationalize it? There was a pastor in the Midwest who read the book with his congregation and soon got sick after and on his deathbed wrote a letter to his congregation saying that he was so grateful that they had taken the compass into their lives together for he had searched his whole life in within his own tradition for how to practice love and he he's found it now mm-hmm. <laughs> and that he wanted his legacy to be leaving everyone with the tools and the inspiration to practice this love and community. And so that, that Brian made me say, okay, <laughs> I'll stick with my promise to play this particular role. And if that means just, you know, being able to, to return Christians to not my faith, but their own faith, the heart mm. of their own faith, the love beating at the heart of their own faith. And here's one way of, of practicing the how Oh, then that is enough. 
What a beautiful story. And I, what a beautiful circle, isn't it? To think that pain was caused you by people who, whose religion had, had put something else in the place of love, had made it impossible for them to see their neighbor as neighbor, but rather to see them as stranger and other and outsider. And here now, that pain you processed through the years. You felt some rage about it enough to walk down the street and bang <laughs> on the door of a church. That's right. Uh, and you, your experience brings you now to try to help people to rediscover that, that treasure of revolutionary love at the core. Can I tell you one more story? Please. Because I feel like so much of my own pain was resolved, evaporated really, when I was brought into the company of Christians who knew how to love me well. And in your book, I mean, I've never asked myself the question, do I stay Christian? The title of your book. And you, <laughs> I am drinking in every word of your book because I think it is such stunning medicine. And in one chapter, it's, you know, include and transcend. And so I remember this moment about a decade ago when I was invited by a friend to preach at her Episcopal church. And when I pulled up to the church in Nebraska, it said on the door, guest preacher, Valerie Gordon. <laughs> 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 I never saw it. You know, I never thought that I'd ever be given such a place. I would never, you know, not even allowed inside, but here, no, preach to us. And so <laughs> I, I actually told the story about the organist and shared my faith and they were so loving. And I sat down after, and then they delivered the Eucharist and asked me to go first. And I had never, never, never been seen as worthy enough to take mm. the Eucharist into mm. my own body. Mm. And I did, and I cried and cried mm. and cried. Mm. I could mm. not stop crying. And Tracy Wells Miller, the reverend of the church who had invited me, just sat with me and held me in my tears. Mm. <laughs> so mm. much crying in, in Christian churches and so much healing. <laughs> and afterwards, they sat with me in a circle, and they, they, they were studying the Stations of the Cross. And... They were asking each other, because they were really looking at my work, they said, you know, if Jesus came to us now, he probably wouldn't look like us. He he probably would look a lot like Bobir Singh Sodhi, who is the, the family friend whose murder in the aftermath of 9-11 made me an activist. It's a story I told them. And when they said that, would they, when they saw Bobir uncle, you know, as not just as kin or as brother, but as possibly the Messiah, <laughs> come to die for our sins. It just, oh, it made me cry all over again. It made me see <laughs> the possibility of staying within a Christian church, within a, tradi a tradition like that, and being able to liberate it mm. into a redemptive force that not could not only see me, but include me and learn from me and be in relationship with me and heal me in return as we healed each other. And I thought if that's possible in the most rural parts of Nebraska, you know, what, what might be possible for Christians today? I, I often say, you know, post-George Floyd's murder, that what if this is a generation that redefines whiteness? Mm -hmm. That whiteness is often associated with, with, um, with domination or blindness, but what if this is a generation that redefines whiteness as, as becoming an accomplice, of, of being in deep solidarity? Like, what if this is a generation <laughs> 
that reclaims, that redefines, that liberates Christianity, that in a way returns to its source of love for all. Love is the way, the truth, and the light. Wouldn't that be how we usher in the world to come? a passage from Do I Stay Christian? What can we do but humbly seek to know ourselves for what we are? Naked of our religious labels, we are fragile human beings who were born but a moment ago, who are here for maybe 70 or 80 circuits around the sun, and who will surely die. Surely we don't think we've figured everything out so quickly. And so too for our species. We are a newly evolved and highly vulnerable population, living on a thin, fragile film of suitable habitat, on a tiny planet orbiting an average sun on the rim of an average galaxy that is just one of over a hundred billion other galaxies. Yes, we are capable of wisdom, beauty, and tenderness. Yet we are still an ignorant and violent species overall, shockingly cruel at times. The dinosaurs lasted for 165 million years, but after just 0.125% of their time on Earth, we humans are on the verge of destroying our civilization and devastating the biosphere in the process. And we dare to call ourselves homo sapiens, the wise ones. If we want to be certain of something, it should be this. We are not very wise. In that light, whatever you choose to call yourself, Christian or not, I hope that you will aspire to be a humble human being. We've devoted two episodes to seeing Christianity from the perspective of people who do not identify as Christians. Special thanks first to Jill Jacobs and then to Valerie Kaur for helping us in this process as guests. Thanks to the Center for Action and Contemplation for their support in hosting these important conversations. Thanks to all of you who have set aside this time to listen and take to heart this important consideration of how we see our own faith in this world of people of so many different faiths. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.